changing that's our usual theme we'd like to be a part of it if not the world at least ourselves it's the 10th of january here first friday show of the real new year brent and i did one on the third i think last friday of course we try and rarely miss those these shows for any reason really i guess the way it's worked out brent and uh but this is the first full week of the year so uh considering that this is the first show of the first full week of the first year of the of the new decade (laughs) a lot of firsts here in the last few days roger sales obviously with you on friday the 10th of 20 1 10 20 that's pretty interesting and Brent's with us, and DP joined us right as we went on the air here, and uh, a lot of things to talk about. Very interesting Friday. A lot of things happened this week. It's been an eventful week for the first week of the year. How you doing, Brent? I'm all right. Now, when DP comes on, he has a, a little picture that comes up, and it's a picture of an old, crusty-looking feller with a cowboy hat pushed back on his head, a pair of glasses, a white beard, and his hand, and a jean jacket, and his hand is, he's sitting at a table or something. His hand is clutching a mug of beer. What it appears to be. Pretty accurate. Yeah. Well, he looks like, what's that? That was from the old days, Brent. Oh, yeah. Well, there have been so many people that I've, people often cut out of molds, and I've seen men like this. They look like this guy. You have too, I reckon. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, there's another one that's real famous of a cowboy that's on all the postcards, and I swear that guy looks just like my cousin Charlie McKenzie. Oh. Well, Charlie's gone now, but uh, yeah, people are cut out of molds. There's no question. Yep. Yep, that's for sure. Um, well, Rod, I got two things on my mind. Okay. Two things that are on my mind for whatever reason. One of them is the shooting, the church shooting down in Texas. And the other one is a verse out of the book called James. And it's about wealth. And I wanted to to talk about both of them, but I don't want to get too heavy too quick if there's something else we need to, well, to get out of the way. I, uh, I, I, you know, this has been a really interesting week. And, and I can't remember. There's very few times. After all the years that I've been plowing the furrow here, the furrows, plural, uh, that I stumble on something that comes out of the ground that's totally new to me. I mean, totally new, but yet is very advantageous in putting additional pieces into what I thought was a pretty complete puzzle picture. Okay. Uh, and this information that came out, and I sent you the links on both of these. We talked about it every day since it happened. Um, uh-huh. Was this information on the Zionism's influence in Ireland all the way going back to the 1290s? And uh-huh. I've had a chance now to listen to not only Alan Buttle's original hour and a half, exceptionally good expose on this information. But then uh-huh. the subsequent, because not only was I blown away, I, like I said, everybody that's 
looked at the information as kind of come away wide-eyed, you know. Uh, Paul, even, and I would think Paul would have a lot more closeness to familiarity with this than us. Well, he was totally taken by surprise, too, and so he had him on one of the shows that he did after he heard the original tape from Alan Buttles. Uh, uh, really interesting information because, boy, does it put a lot of pieces together for me. Uh-huh. Uh, well, you know, I listened to it too, Roger, and I, my impression was, of course, uh, unique to whatever conscience I have, whatever whatever gathered knowledge is in my skull, and uh, I put it together with some things I knew about. I didn't realize, never heard how intense it was there. But when I heard, when I hear, when I heard. Oh, this darn phone. Let me see if I can tone it down a little. Yeah. Let me do this. You know, I've got yeah. a, a button I can press and yeah, said no. And it, just tells them no. What? Just like uh, uh, Nancy Reagan, just say no. Yeah. <laughs> well, I got a button I can punch now that says nice things though, like I can't talk right now on the phone, whatever I want to hit, and I just hit it, and that's kind of nice. Oh, okay. But um. Yeah, it's a feature. I'd never noticed it before on my uh, telephone. But anyhow, I listened to it, and uh, I was reminded when the word Collins came up. I believe his name was Michael Collins. Piper. He was a famous uh, revolutionary there in in, uh, Ireland. And, of course, it wasn't the Protestants that were upset. It's always the Romanists that are upset. And, of course, when they can get in league with the Talmudists, and they often do if it's advantageous to them, they do it. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. You got to remember, I got to remember, I try to keep in mind that the useful idiots of the evil empire all hate one another. And the only reason they hang together is because there's money in it. Money. And they can fill the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the vainglory of life, glory of life, and they'll call themselves and each other comrades and all that. Now, that lasts a while, but doesn't last forever. That's the nature of the polis and politics and the law of the city. But Michael Collins was depicted. Who depicted him? Oh, Jimmy Cagney. Jimmy Cagney depicted Michael Collins in a famous movie back when I was a little boy. Told the story of what happened. And the movie, when it was over, I just remember its name, the name of the movie. But in the end, it made him out to be nothing but a wide-eyed murderer who, who got out of control and enjoyed killing and enjoyed the fun of the political revolution more than he enjoyed what was true, which is probably what really happened. But whenever you get people that are what I, what I call a terrorist and the name and the word of terrorist is being hijacked by the useful idiots of the evil empire. But a terrorist is one who extends terror and terror is, um, had been more popular more better known, I should say in the word territory. Because territory is a word of the law of the city, the law of Rome, the law of Babylon, the law of Pergamos, the law of Egypt that now covers the globe. And the territory is the area is the area of land upon which people live that the law of the city extends out from the city, the mother city, it's terror. And terrorist is somebody who has no sensibility about age or sex or, or condition of infirmity. And just murders whoever's in the way. And that's what it seems that Michael Collins and these revolutionaries in Ireland, again, all Roman Catholic, none of them Protestant. And not to say that the Protestants aren't 
dangerous people at certain times and up there. I'm not an expert on that subject, but I do see that it's not the Protestants in Ireland that are the terrorists and not the orange, not the orange men, but the green men for the terrorists that murder without discrimination. And it doesn't surprise me that being true that the Talmudists were deep into that in Ireland from the 1290s, which I believe you said was, no, you didn't say it, but in that, in that video that Paul posted, uh, 1290 is connected. Oh, now here, here it is. Here it is. That's connected with the reign of Edward I Longshanks, who was the one, and he's demonized in the movies, you see. Sure. Really was a good man in many, many ways, called the Hammer of the Scots. I'm not saying he was, a, he was Jesus Christ, but he did more for the, for the stability of the common law in England than about anybody except his grandpa, Henry II. But Edward I expelled all the usurers, that means all the Talmudists, out of the kingdom. Kings before him, such as John Lackland, the signer of Magna Carta, the famous John, King John of, of Robin Hood fame, the one that mm-hmm. commissioned the sheriff of Nottingham to mm-hmm. murder Robin Hood, um, he was the one that hocked himself up, which means hocked up all of England, because kings don't make any money. They just take it from people. Governments do. He That's necessary sometimes, but he hocked himself up to the gills uh, with the Jewish moneylenders of England. Now, you want to read about this, all you got to do is read Magna Carta. It's all there. You just have to flesh it out. At a rate, by the way, of about 43 and a third and 86 and two-thirds percent interest per year. That's to the Jewish moneylenders in England, which means he hocked up the landholders. Well, then he also promised the Islamic sultan of Morocco that he would make all of England Islamic if the sultan would give him all the gold and silver he needed to raise an army to, to beat down the landholders of England. And he also, <laughs> in addition to those two, he promised the Pope of Rome that he would make, he would turn the whole country over to the Pope as his own fiefdom. That means that he would own everything, all the land in England. He would turn it over to him if the Pope of Rome would give him all the money he needed to raise an army to fight down and beat down the landholders of England and to raise an army, help him raise an army in France among the Frenchmen to invade England. Well, the landholders finally woke up and said, whoa, Nelly. Easy. Enough. Easy, Big John. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Easy, boy. What are we going to do here? And the Pope had raised an army, posed to invade England from France. And so they said, okay, okay, we got to raise an army and we're going to try to corner this SOB, S-O-B. That means in the Bible, son of Belial, son of worthlessness, son of dangersomeness. We're going to corner this guy. And they did. They cornered him and his army on a low island in the Thames River, low and level, and it was called the Plain of Runnymede. And they cornered him there and they had their their swords um, unsheathed and uh, the points of the swords were in his throat and they said look we don't want to be unfriendly or anything I mean we are fellow Englishmen and all but we just we want to give you a choice 
Now you can come over here and pick up this quill pen and sign this document we got over here that Stephen Langton drafted, or you can come over here on the other side. We will kill you, but we'll let you live and lead your army, but we're going to fight and we're going to fight to the death over what you're trying to do to our country. Sell us down the river. By the way, just as the leadership in England is presently doing today, selling them out to Islam, the Pope of Rome and the Jewish moneylenders, just yep. like Magna Carta. Nothing to change, does it? Nope. Same things happening all over world the three religious points of view the three re false religious points of view the three demonic religious points of view that are most prominent in the world today are romanism islam and talmudic judaism and all three of those arose in their modern form in europe at the same time under the leadership of three men who all knew each other namely avaros in northern africa the Islamic sage and the leader of Islam, he's the man that introduced introduced uh, the, the primacy of logic over fact, in other words, the writings of Aristotle and Plato, into Islam, and he also introduced that idea of logic over fact to two men in Europe. One of them was St. Thomas Aquinas, saint, he's not a saint anymore than the man the moon, any more than you or I, maybe he was, but... There's lots of saints. All of God's people are set aside as special for a special purpose. Anyway, Thomas Aquinas and his doctrine and his books are now official doctrine of Romanism. And the Jewish rabbi, Mohammedes. And through those two men, by way of Averroes, the Islamic sage of northern Africa, the idea, and this is fundamental to the law of the city, the polis, that logic, Trump's fact, logic comes first instead of the, instead of the other way around, had now pervades. Scholasticism is the Roman name for it. Academian, academic, academics and academianism is the, also the Roman and Greek and Roman word for it. A Talmudism is scholasticism. You don't believe it? Go read the rabbis. That's what they say. Talmudism is scholasticism. Well, it's all about logic. Is there anything wrong with logic? No, nothing wrong with logic. It's just that you're getting the cart before the proverbial horse if you say logic comes before fact. It's the other way around. No, no. You establish the fact first. Right. And our common law tradition of religion, law, and government, Christianity, the Bible, puts fact before logic. Paul the Apostle says, I have delivered unto you, cruddy Corinthians, that which I first received. And then he recites pretty much the Apostle's Creed, but... It's not the Apostles' Creed, but the facts of the matter. You go to the Bible. Who wrote more of the Bible, or more of the Newer Testament, than any other writer? He was a, a Gentile fellow. Gentile, I don't like to use that word. No, he was a non-Jew, a non-Jew hmm. whose name was Luke. Luke wrote more of the Newer Testament than any other writer by pages, including Paul the Apostle. Luke wrote two books, the Gospel of Luke and Acts and Paul wrote about 13, but he didn't write as many pages. But Luke, in his books, there is no theology, no philosophizing, no doctrine at all. He just records what was said and done and doesn't give an opinion about it. It's fascinating. He was the consummate historian. Well, what is history? It is pure, unadulterated fact. In fact, he wrote those books to a government official. It's official government documents, 
And that, of course, at common law, as a matter of evidence, gives it high priority. But we go to the Older Testament. We see the same pattern over and over and over. The Older Testament, the first five books, the foundation of all of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, written originally. Uh, initially, the book of Genesis, the first book, nothing but solid history. And then you get into Exodus, you get the same thing. And before you get to the giving of the law in the book of Exodus, the 20th chapter, is not given. God's will is not given to us until he tells us who we are, and that's a matter of fact. Where'd you come from? Who, who are you? Paul the Apostle does that in every epistle in the New Testament. He lays out the fact of who you are, the fact of the matter, where you come from. Now, chapter 12 out of 16 in Romans, for instance, chapter 12, verse 1, then he gives the first command. We, God doesn't tell us what he wants us to do until he gives us the facts of history establishing who we are. Period. Never any other way. The law of the city, as opposed to the law of the land on that point, our common law, the law of the city turns that around the other way. What comes first? Logic? You think I'm joking? That's how stupid it is. You read Blackstone. Blackstone, in his, in his commentaries, he says this. And he had studied the law of the city at Oxford. And then he became a common lawyer, and he made his choice on intelligent basis. He understood both systems. Either fact comes first or logic comes first. And he said, believe it or not, he said, with the law of the city, the law of Rome, the code of Justinian, the canon law of the Church of Rome, logic comes first. And he makes the point, he said, that is as ridiculous as that is, as stupid, as crazy as fact. That's why you see people today talking about Critical thinking. It makes me cringe when I hear patriots say, we need to learn to think critically. No, we don't need to learn to think critically. We need to get the facts. Believe me, you get the facts and your neck's in the noose or your life or liberty or property is on the line. Your critical thinking ability will just come. Men know how to think when they want to. That's the, the fact of the matter. They don't have to be. Logic is natural, Roger. Go ahead. My experience, I hate to interrupt you, Brent. I mean, really, but my experience oh, no. in, 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 in over 30 years now unraveling this thing is exactly what you said. Once you get the facts, the connections come automatically. And men, as and, and, the, and the Greeks said this. I forget which famous Greek philosopher said this. But I th uh, anyway, he said this. Not important. He said this. He said, horses are born to run, birds are born to fly, hounds are born to hunt, beasts of prey are born to ferocity, and men are born to think. Logic. Yeah. It comes natural. Yeah. And if you see people stressing critical thinking and they don't talk about facts, clear out from them. And there are a lot of people in the patriot community that are sucked in to that. Now, when I say patriot community... I'm not just talking about Americans. Every man and every woman ought to be a patriot to his own country. Why? Because God gave it to him. What is your country? It's your land, L-A-N-D. That means dirt. That means earth. And you are to love the land the Lord your God has given you because that's where all your sustenance, sustenance and wealth comes from. It didn't come from anyplace else. If you don't have that, you ain't got nothing. And so God gave it to you, and he commands you to love it. What does that mean? That means to do what he tells you to do, respecting it, take care of it, treat it right, and, and he'll bless you, and you won't be thrown off the land, and the evil forces of the evil empire and the useful idiots of it will not invade you in mass, as is happening right now, for instance, in the English-speaking world. 
invade you en masse. Why does that happen? It's because of us. Who's the enemy here? Well, first, it's us. We're the idiots that have been sucked into talking about logic instead of fact. Let's talk about the fact of the matter, and then we can reason from the facts. If you don't have a foundation of fact, you can't even do the old fundamental syllogism. Right. Syllogism is fundamental That's to right. all logic. And if you can't, and again, most people listening will say, I don't know what a syllogism is. You don't have to. Your brain works. That's just people trying to use words like that. That comes from the Greek world, trying to categorize and analyze more logic. But your mind works. The most intelligent, forward-thinking people in the world have not been formally educated. But when you hear people stress that logic, or stress logic before fact, Roger, and just constantly talk about critical thinking, critical thinking, critical thinking, as many patriots do. Patriot, oh, by the way, Roger, to go back to that point, patriot. What is a patriot? It's an old Latin word. It means fatherland. Fatherland. It's in the masculine. In the Germanic speech of English, it's fatherland. We're not pagans. We do not worship Mother Earth. Mother. No, no, no. Uh, I was telling the story, maybe it was on this show last time, about Tecumseh. Did I tell the story about Tecumseh? Tecumseh was the engine, the red man, that finally saw. He was very, very perceptive, and he was a, a natural leader, and he was a great orator. He was in the north, and William Henry Harrison with him was in the north, what Andy Jackson was in the south. William Henry Harrison defeated Tecumseh in battle at Tippecanoe. Tippa, canoe. And then he ran for president. I remember learning this in high school, Roger. Tippa, canoe, and Tyler, too. Yeah, was that a, was his campaign slogan. I was about to say. Did you learn it? I, I was about to say, yes. That's the one. You know, if you say Tippa, canoe, Tyler, too's in there, in my mind. They're in Yeah, Tyler was the vice president. Yeah. And the, he, became, like Andy Jackson, became famous because he whooped the British. In New Orleans, right. well, that catapulted, well, he was famous already, that catapulted him into the presidency eventually. Same thing happened to William Henry Harrison in uh, north of the Ohio, and he defeated Tecumseh. The, the British, of course, were all for Tecumseh. They were allies, and Tecumseh traveled throughout the Ohio Valley, Kentucky, Tennessee, mountain to Alabama, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, and even up into Wisconsin and Michigan and tried to organize all of the tribes. He said, our problem is we've been enemies. Now we've got to come together. The white man's going to take. And he was the really the only one that we know about that really uh, finally grasped their problem, the problem of the red man and why they were being defeated. And here was the problem, Roger. They had no concept of land ownership and responsibility for land. People say they did. They didn't. They just, they, they just, <laughs> that's why they were taken so often. Finally, he said, look, this is our land. We got to get the concept that the white man has from the Christian Bible, that land is given, God gives it to men. He gave it to us. They never caught that. Well, finally, but here's the, the point I was trying to make. If I didn't make it last week, I'll repeat it again if I did. He met with William Henry Harrison at Vincennes, Indiana. Vincennes was a fort, a fort on the Wabash River just south of Terre Haute. It's the next significant town south of Terre Haute on the Wabash. The Wabash flows down into the Ohio. And they met at Fort Vincennes, William Henry Harrison and Tecumseh. Tecumseh. 
the leader of all of the red people. There were a lot of them that joined him, the red men. And William Henry Harrison was trying to get along with him and had everything set up for the meeting. The shade trees were there, and he had tables set up and chairs, and everybody was supposed to sit in a certain place, and he was being a good host. Of course, the red men didn't understand any of that, understand any of that. So when he said, Mr. Tecumseh, you You'll sit down here in this chair. Tecumseh crossed his legs, sat down on the ground, and said, I prefer to sit on the bosom of my mother, Earth. Well, that was part of their religion. Earth was their mother, not their father. And now there's significance in that, big significance. When I was in first grade, Roger, we were, that was back a long time before the flood of Noah, back when we used to pray in public school every day and our teacher would pray with us. Miss Wolf would pray with us. Ancient. Oh yeah. Oh, we're talking. Yeah. She taught us the Bible. She went to church down there where we did her old family from that same bunch. We knew her well, but I remember learning about American history. We had a picture of Abe Lincoln on one side up in front of the classroom and a picture of George Washington on the other side, and then we had the American flag hanging in front. Amazing, you think about this. By the way, it was a 48-star flag. Now, yeah. at that time, we had 50 states. Well, right at that time, yeah, right at that time, we got 50 states. Now, yeah, that was 59, was it, when Alaska 50, came in? 57, 58, I thought, was when Hawaii and Alaska came in, but certainly that time frame. Well, we, whatever the case, that's about the time I started school, but we had a flag we still had the 48-star flag and a little bit of different arrangement. Of course, we as children didn't know the difference, but we were taught patriotism, of course. And we were taught, but we were taught in the language of the French-speaking people who had invaded England in the year 1066. We didn't realize that. teacher probably didn't either. But you see, England was known as the mother country. Mother right. country. That was the influence that came from the Norman invasion. Uh, they spoke a bastardized form of the French tongue. And so uh, before that, uh, it was the fatherland because the word, the English word the, in, in English and the Germanic speech, all Germanic speech, Scandinavian speech, German speech, Anglo-Saxon, Frisian, Dutch, land is masculine, not feminine. Hmm. And to the American red man, it was feminine and he worshipped the land. That's demonism. To worship a created thing, that's idolatry. And that spells the difference between their concept. And that goes a long ways to describe the struggle we have had here in the New World with the Red Man. Just under, because it always, always, always comes back to the fundamental concerns of human existence, and we call that religion. That's the definition the Supreme Court has given it, and I think that, that hel that's helpful. It has more meaning than that, but men live by their religion, and there ain't a man on the face of the planet that doesn't have a religion. Because every man, every man has a lawgiver, a final arbiter of right and wrong from whose decision he doesn't afford any, any, uh, any appeal. Could be himself, could be his professor, could be the Supreme Court, could be the Pope of Rome, could be his preachers, could be his dad, could be a lot of things. Could be some inanimate object that he worships, like a, a, an idol, a, a statue of Mary, whatever. Every man has a, a lawgiver, a final arbiter of right and wrong from whose decision there is no meaningful appeal. And when you have a lawgiver, your response to whatever you deem as your lawgiver, that's your God, Elohim in the Bible, that's your testament. 
whatever your response is in obedience, or your resp- any response, so you say, oh, any response, that's your religion, religare, you're binding back to your lawgiver. Well, that's what dictates what goes on, always, 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 without exception. Don't tell me otherwise. That's silly talk. People are driven by their heart of hearts, by the core of what is inside of them, what they believe down at the very depths and deepest place in their being. And it's no mystery then, and that describes why men have the governments they have. Where you are, Roger, we've talked about. Why do they have a government that's a dictatorship? Fundamentally, it's God walking on earth in South America. That's what government is. Because they're comfortable with a dictatorship because they're Romanist. At the heart of hearts, the deepest part of what they believe government ought to be is dictatorship, which comes down to, of course, a single will, whether the single will of one man, the single will of a combination of men. Go ahead. I was going to say in South America, what I've come to understand is that it's not only because of the Catholicism, but it's because uh-huh. of their, their tribal history is that way. I mean, the Incas, all these Indian tribes, they were set up in that type of fashion where whoever the ruler was was the god. So it's really second nature to them as a culture. Yeah, I get it. And you make an excellent point. You know, <laughs> all false religion is fundamentally the same. It just has different labels and variations that are not don't, don't, don't change the fundamentals. And when the explorers got to the part of the world where you are, Central America, South America, Mexico even, they found the priests yep. of the religion with the rosary, the rosary, doing the rosary. It was a little bit applied, a little bit different, but all of those things bespeak the fundamental, the, the, the common source of all false religion, which the Bible says, point blank, is Babylon, the mother of all harlots. Everything is Babylonian if it's not true religion. True religion, the Bible says, the book of James says, of course, is the religion of of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the God of the Old Testament. He's the warrior that wipes out armies. He comes as the servant in the Newer Testament, and he's coming again as the warrior that wipes out those that oppose him. If it isn't that, if that's not your master, if Jesus Christ is not your master, you are a follower at some point, somehow, of Babylonian religion. That's what you've got, and that's the doctrine of demons, and it will come to no good. You may think you have it all right now. The evil empire may be providing for you. You may even feel like you're prospering and happy. It won't last. It can't last. It doesn't last. History shows it won't last. There's evil in it. And the only thing you've got, if you're in that position, and you have not bowed, the not the knee, but bowed your knees, plural, to Jesus Christ, you, friend, are doomed. That's the message of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus Christ says. Not one knee, two knees, you got to get on your belly. You know the word for worship in the Older Testament, Roger, or the Newer Testament, and the Older Testament too. When you by the letters, it means to kiss the dirt, kiss the dirt. Huh. And if you're a tribute, what's that, Roger? I just said, I, I said, huh? Yeah. If you if you're attributing the power of final of lawgiver, final arbiter of right and wrong to anything, including yourself or any other created thing, dead or alive, you're kissing the dirt to that thing. That's the way the, the Bible presents it in both Testaments. You're kissing the dirt. Would you kiss the toe of the Pope? That's kissing the, the dirt. And listen, Roger, it is un-American. It's utterly un-American 
to lick any man's boots. Why would anyone be involved in a system that would demand that kind of demeaning behavior? To do that kind of thing is to demean Jesus Christ. Why? Because he demands that you worship him, him alone, him and no other, him and no more. There is no mediator between God and man except the man, Christ Jesus. Back to you, Roger. I'll take a breather. I've been wondering why people have bend over and lick their boots for well nigh 25 plus years now, Brent, honestly. Um, Let me take us in another direction here because I sent you several things. It's been a real rich week. Uh, Another one, which I hope you've had a chance. I could not finish, honestly, but I got partway through it. Was this uh, Uh two-on-one Kabbalist v. E. Michael Jones discussion. Did you get a chance to peep at that? I didn't get to that one, but I want you to tell me about it. Well, I can't tell you too much about it because, as I said, quite honestly and straightforwardly, I couldn't get through the whole thing. Uh, very, not? very evident. For, and Paul was very familiar with one of these guys. He's a real seemingly level-headed, uh, uh, objective uh, Kabbalist. He's, one, he's an international Kabbalistic leader of some sort. And then somebody that he knew in Europe who's the old typical bearded uh, uh, rabbi type guy and he his part of the discussion was done through a translator you could hear the yiddish in the background or hebrew or whatever i'm assuming is yiddish um but they got to a point in the middle where he kind of turned it over the part i watched now up to about halfway through um and i sent it to daryl daryl requested it yesterday so maybe if you watched it last night daryl and had the ability to get through the entire thing uh you may call in and there's maybe something i missed okay quite honestly but when this guy speaking hebrew that was being translated started talking about how the cow and he did i will tell you that he did go back and say there's a big jewish problem and he went back to the origins of it in babylon and went back on how that and and you will find that i'm sure quite interesting i'm not sure how it'll it'll land with you but I thought it was tremendously honest and straightforward, all right? And, uh, but when he got to the point of the overall concept, high-reaching, high-level concept is the Kabbalah, of the Kabbalah when you achieve it is to love your neighbor. That's, that's kind of when I threw in the towel, man. <laughs> so just to let you know what the point of demarcation was with me, uh, but it, 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 it was pretty interesting to have that scenario and, uh, maybe I'll go back and try and catch the back half. I doubt it, but I'd like for somebody that did watch the whole thing that was, uh, you know, that understands this stuff to maybe give us their read, but that's about where I got. And I thought it was very interesting that we're at a point in time where that scenario was even happening, quite frankly. The, the two Kabbalists against E. Michael Jones. And it wasn't, you know, heated or anything. They were going back, doing a lot of factual stuff. They opened it up with the more modern guy asking E. Michael Jones, are you an anti-Semite? And E. Michael Jones uh, demurred real good and stepped off to the side and went back into the actual 
origin of the term anti-Semite, who came up with it and what was the circumstance, and then ended his answer with, in those terms, I'm not. <laughs> Which I thought was pretty clever, oh. uh, but it's it's interesting. Uh, well, you know, what I what I would say, I can always think of things to say after the fact. You know, it's and, easy, and a lot easier. That. A lot easier. And I've had them say. You know, when I had a radio show uh, ten years ago, and uh, I wasn't a professional radio guy. I had three hours every morning drive time, but. Um, had one on the air and he, he made that accusation. I thought we were friends. I wasn't, it wasn't even, we weren't even discussing such things. And, uh, this was a lesson to me. He had, uh, started a church in Terre Haute, Indiana, this fella. And he called himself the Rabster, R-A-B-S-T-E-R. Apparently that was a cross between the words rabbi and pastor. And uh, he had this, these people at church uh, closing down businesses on Saturday. Not that I'm against that, but he was leading them slowly, just like the Judaizers, as the Bible puts it in the New Testament, were Judaizing. They, were, they traveled about and tried to claim that Christianity is Judaism. And Paul the Apostle was forever. Everywhere he went, he went to the synagogue first and said, no, uh, that's not the case. This is the religion. This is true religion. This is not Babylonian Judaism. That's what they had, Babylonian Judaism. And well, that's what this fellow was doing. He was a Judaizer, I learned later, in Terre Haute. And he had all these, he was making a lot of it up. A lot of it was out of the Talmud. He had them down, I remember, at the Wabash River on Saturdays his congregation, throwing rocks, trying to skip rocks across the water. Flat rocks. You've skipped rocks before, Roger, I'm sure. I have. And, uh, yeah, me too. And uh, he said that was part of the tradition. I forget what he attached to it. But false religion is always like that. You take something that is from the false religion, you just keep building on it, making stuff up as you go. That's what Babylonian Judaism is all over the world and always has been. But back at its source, it's always the same. Well, he was doing that, and he made accusation. There was a... A Wisconsin Synod, Wisconsin Synod Lutheran pastor that would come in a week or two or a day or two a week with me, and we were on the air together. I liked him to death, still friends, close friend with him. But uh, this Rabster, he's a Jewish fellow that had come from one of the big cities back east. And boy, he was driving a fancy sports car, had a lot of money. I don't know where he got it. And uh, he made the the accusation that, no, no, he said this, all of Israel will be saved. All of Israel will be saved. And this Lutheran said, now, wait a minute, without Jesus Christ, nobody's going to get saved. And I don't believe that the every person, God just going to save them all. No, no, no. The Bible teaches there is no other name under heaven whereby men can be saved except the name Jesus Christ, quoting from the Bible. And uh, he said, well, then he shot back in anger that the Jewish fellow did and said, you're anti-Semitic. Well, he shouldn't have done that because that fellow was on him like ugly on an ape. This guy was <laughs> a great big fellow, this Lutheran pastor. He was a power lifter. That's what he did in his spare time. It wasn't that he was tall. He was built like a fire hydrant, you know, mm -hmm. and boy, could he pick up a lot of weight. But he said to him, now, wait a minute. 
you're not going to do that to me. He said, the truth is you're anti-Semitic. A Semite is a descendant of Shem. And all of the Arab world are descendants of Shem. And you hate them. You're the anti-Semite. I have friends, he says, that are Lutherans, that are Arabs, that are not Islamic. And he said, I don't hate them. They're my brothers. You're the anti-Semite. And that is what needs to be thrown back at them. They are anti-Semitic. They hate the Arab people. And the Arab people are Semites. They themselves have no, not one shred, not one shred of historic evidence of their identity. How do I know? Two reasons. Number one, the law of God in the book of Deuteronomy promises that's what will happen. Number two, number two, the book of Esther shows us the beginning of that obscuring that 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 prophesied, God himself prophesied in his law that their identity would be obscured. That's number two, book of Esther. Is that that's what it's all about. Number three, at the flattening, the razzing, to use the old word, razzing of the city of Jerusalem right down to the proverbial ground. And I mean flat, wasn't proverbial. No, took it right down to the real ground. Threw every stone in the temple down just so they could get at the gold that had melted on top of it and ran down in the cracks. Just as Jesus Christ said would happen, every stone would be thrown down, he told Peter. You think this is magnificent? And people in that day, the Jewish people, the Jewish, no, the Israelite people and the Babylonian Jews said, oh, this temple will last forever. Well, in 70 AD, the general officer, the Roman general officer Titus came down from the north and he was conquering little towns and villages and the people in Jerusalem knew he was coming and they knew what he was going to do. He was going to flatten that town right to the ground, just like Jesus Christ said. Well, I should say the Christian people in Jerusalem knew that. So what did the Christian people do? About 100,000, it is estimated. They packed up their belongings and they scattered. They got out of there just like Jesus Christ said in Matthew 24, Romans, Romans uh, 13, and Luke 21. When you see these things happening, do not return to get your outer, your overcloak, you get out of Dodge and head for the hills, and you'll save your lives, and they all did. But hundreds of thousands of, the, of Babylonian Jews, votaries of Babylonian Judaism, didn't follow what they heard him say, Jesus Christ, and they stayed there, and they were slaughtered by the hundreds of thousands or sold into slavery in northern Africa and southern Europe. Jesus Christ told them what to do. Well, that point in history, actually, the, Jew, the general officer, Titus, had to go back to Rome just before he got to, to Jerusalem, and he turned the, the destruction of the city over to his son. He was called back to become emperor. And so the city was flattened. But that was the point in history that God said by that act. He said, no, this is not Judaism this is what came to be called Christianity, which means followers of Jesus Christ. And you fellows in your Babylonian religion have perverted, entirely displaced my law. Jesus Christ said 
by your traditions. What's the tradition? The traditions of the elders. What is the tradition of the elders? Well, it's put to writing now. That's the Babylonian Talmud. Mm -hmm. By your traditions, you make void. You cancel out the law of God. Listen, the law of God is just, to simply put, it's the will of God. And followers of Jesus Christ follow his will. Who is he? He's God. He's also fully man. But he's the only God, the only proclaimed God. He is the true God. Whoever, our God, became man. There have been a lot of men that have claimed to be God, but only the true God claims to be man in the person and only in the person of Jesus Christ. (laughs) Just the opposite. Yes. Let me ask you a question just time frame wise. When Nebuchadnezzar took either just the royal hierarchy and the upper echelon back, or more, and I don't know which those is. I've, I've heard both opinions cited. But when they came back and they were released, first of all, Nebuchadnezzar died, and it was his successor that released them, I've come to understand. And But at what time frame when, from when they were released to when and all of the oral tradition, the tradition of the elders festered, through those families and through that mindset of people before Jesus came back. Because I know the other side of the reference point is you mentioned back then it was called the tradition of the elders because it was only passed down from father to son orally. And it was not, I I learned, until 500 years after Christ was crucified that it was written down in that first edition called the Sunoco edition, and it is titled the Babylonian Talmud. So I was looking for that front end reference on how long this thing took to fester before he came along and punched it. Well, they were in Babylon for 70 years. Remember right. that, that was a strong beginning of festering. And that's a good word. Uh, that makes the point because it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a gathering of, it's a, it's a boy. It's, yeah, it's pus. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 yeah, Paul the Apostle uses that word that means that. It's a, a, a gathering of pus and filth. And it, it began to pile up. Of course, they were taken away in the 6th, that'd be the same. I've got this back. We've been in the 500s AD. Mm-hmm. And then back, they came back 70 years later. So there were about 500 years there for it mm-hmm. to, to fester, to fester before Jesus Christ came upon the scene as a child. As a baby born of Mary, the virgin. So it did fester a lot. 500 years, a long time, Roger. Sure Our country's only been in existence. Yeah. Even since the pilgrims have landed. We're, we haven't been here 500 years. A lot of things can happen in 500 years. And the when, Babylon, when Babylonian religion is given free reign, it becomes profitable. And it becomes profitable, by the way, very quickly. Uh, that's the evil empire designs it to be profitable. There is wealth there. Don't think there isn't. And that's the, all they've got, really, of course, is mammon. But once it becomes wealthy, like they become very attractive, and everybody wants to join the powerful party. Right. And so they join up to it. But as you said, the tradition. Now, here's what they said. This was a lie. Remember, I said a while ago that uh, King, jo- who was it? I said, just kept making stuff up as he went. That's the way all of Babylon has always done. That's why it has different labels all over the world, but still fundamentally the same. Right. But um, Judaism then began to make stuff up about history. And what they said was this. They said, this is what the Talmud says today. And it's written down. The Talmud is the oral tradition written down. They, and the reason it was an oral tradition 
just like all false religion, just like Romanism, uh, just like um, Judaism, just like Islam, they have their secret. They have their secrets that are only privy to the elite. Correct. Islam uh, has such men. Uh, they're they're the ones that are the only ones that are really commissioned to interpret the holy writings that they call them holy. Uh, Romanism has the priesthood, of course, and Judaism has the rabbis. They're the only ones. Are you there, Roger? Yeah, I'm here. I right. had something pop up. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. Anyway, I, I got to keep talking. I can't be distracted <laughs> by this. Yeah, they, it is. It's very distracting <laughs> when that stuff happens. I know exactly what's going on. Oh, yeah. Well, while you gather yourself, Chris has got something to say. We hadn't even welcomed him in, so I'll let you circle the wagons and get back to where you were before the distraction. I know exactly. See, that's my complaint with people always interrupting me with stuff is you're concentrating, you're in the middle of something, and this comes out of left field. It totally takes you off track. Hey, Chris, what's going on, buddy? Well, good morning, Brent and Roger and anybody else that's listening to the People's Patriot Network and learning the truth this morning. I had the occasion to look at some True News Rick Wiles videos that were pretty informative with my friend here. And I was listening very closely to Brent, and he was talking about the traditions, the lies of the uh, so-called rabid rabbis, the elders and their Talmud, their written versions that were scribed by the scribes and the Pharisees, and that sometimes they have deep secrets that are not written down that are only known to the elites, the black-robed high priest of Baal, as you were. But more importantly, I wanted to go back in his commentary a little earlier towards the front, uh, where he was mentioning the tares and the, the territories, and it's my contention that that word is an assimilation that really reveals who we're dealing with, the terror of the Tories. And uh, that word that's constructed by the assimilation of those two different concepts, I think, is very revelative. And these are the same people, the uh, Caiaphas, who was the counsel to Justinian or Flavius Augustus Constantinus. And uh, this stuff is so layered, like a babushka doll, just layers on top of layers like onion, that it is difficult for less than the intrepid those who are driven by a love of the truth to search out the truth of the actual I, answers and separate the shaft from the lies I was, and stuff from the reality. I was really thinking about that heavy right before the show started today and that because they have not a love of the truth and what makes us different and the motivations that we undergo and to do all that, this kind of stuff that we've done. Uh, Brent, and, and since you went back there, Chris, I, want, I had a comment on that, too, when you were talking about the word terrorism coming from the word territory. Um, uh-huh. I don't know if you know, you probably do, but evidently until recently, and they've changed it recently, um, since the inception of the first the word or the dictionary, the Oxford English Dictionary, the first definition of terrorism was intimidated intimidation by government as happened in the French Revolution. That was the definition. They've just they've recently taken it out of number one, I guess. Somebody told me. But for many years that was the definition, intimidation by government. Yeah, I'm hijacking the words, but the way to 
really deal with words has been my discovery over now a few decades is to follow the etymology of the word. Now, mm -hmm. the evil empire constantly, uh, constantly takes words out of their etymological meaning. That means tracing back to their the root and what they've always meant. There is always, no matter how a word is used and what context it's in, I've discovered the fundamental meaning in almost every case is always there underneath, always. Mm -hmm. And the, the trick, the trick to really understanding context and words is to go find that fundamental meaning and see how it plays out in this particular use. There was a time, Roger, in my life, a very short time, oh, it was about a year. That's a pretty short time, I guess, to span a life. But I was, when I was in politics, here's what happened. I ran for office, and the, one of the fellows I ran uh, at the same time with became governor. And so I got to know him because when we go to meetings, uh, I ran in 27 counties out of 102, and uh, he was often there. And we'd sit up front and take turns speaking, and you kind of get to know him. We got to know his wife, and just because we'd see each other pretty often, and uh, when it was all over, he won, and I lost. And he sent word to me and said, I want you to come work for me. And uh, he said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I don't know. I don't know uh, everything, but I do know about uh, minerals. I know about coal and oil and gas. And we had a lot of coal and oil and gas in my district. He said, okay, I'll put you over there. And he said, I want you to uh, certain things he wanted me to do. Well, I got there. And uh, I discovered that uh, even though there was a, a, an administrative arm out there that dealt with minerals, it was controlled utterly by a man who had got himself in the position of being director of national re natural resources, who was a, a left-wing wacko tree, hug tree hugger. And uh, so immediately I was looked at as a spy from the governor's office. And so they went to war against me. Um, and I'm glad I'm out of there. But what I learned while I was there, I was uh, put to helping draft um, uh, regula regulations for oil and gas and mining. And I discovered for myself that when we went to draft regulations, of course, what we wanted to do was draft them in such a way that and this is true of all legislation, be clear so that the courts don't have to guess about what you're saying. Well, having no other way to do it, what I ended up doing, and everybody else seemed to follow it with me, and I'm glad they did, was checking out the etymology of all these simple words, just simple words. You take them back, if you use them in a way, in a regulation, that is outside of their fundamental use uh, uh, through the centuries, a long, long chain of use, then you're court in trouble and there's going to be ambiguity because no matter what the evil empire does to words, I have discovered they still have an etymological use. And that's true of all writings of legal significance. Take the greatest law book available to man, which is the Bible law law is the will of the sovereign God of heaven. And earth is the true sovereign. It's a book about his will. And it has been said for centuries now, since the reformation and even before, but the reformation nailed this home is the first use, for example, of the Older Testament, the first use of a Hebrew word sets, sets the proper use of that word throughout the Older Testament. I have found that to be true because the Older Testament covers uh, pretty near 1,500 years. And 
the etymological use of those Hebrew words, as you trace them through the Older Testament, that fundamental use that's first used, or the first use of it, for example, in the first chapters of Genesis, and you can find a lot of them there. That use never changes throughout the Older Testament, and I think that's so abundantly apparent, you can't argue with it. Well, I have found that to be true also of words in our English tongue and our writings of legal significance that we have observed called common law writings, which are our observations. Things are they're not going to change in nature among men, relationships among men, and among men and things, and men and governments, etc. The relationships, and our common law is a law not of uh, subjects, it's a law of relationships. The re subjects of our common law we divide it into relationships just as the Bible does. Um, in, in the Ten Commandments, for example, it starts out fundamentally. The first five commandments govern the relationship, your vertical relationship with your maker, between uh, the maker of heaven and earth and man. Five of the Ten Commandments govern uh, your horizontal relationships with other men. And all then, all of the law of God breaks down that way, and that's the way we organize our common law. We do not organize it as the law of the city does, according to just subject, contracts, admiralty, whatever. Ours is different because fundamental to God's law is the, the, the strengthening and the keeping of lawful relationships lawfully entered, such as marriage, uh, parents and children, promisor, promisee, bailor, bailee, trustor, trustee, and all the relationships we have with government, etc. That's what the Bible does also. So the fundamentals of words are, are important to trace them back Critical. and to understand their fundamental meaning. Go ahead, Roger. Critical. Critical. Oh, it's utterly it's not critical. fundamental, it's critical. Yeah, we go, for example, Roger, just go, for example, to uh, Magna Carta. It was written in Latin, and the reason it was written in Latin, so the Pope of Rome would read it, and all the priesthood would read it, and all the world would read it, and all the professors and all the universities of Europe would read it. That's who his target was. So he wrote it in Latin. He wanted it to be an international statement of what was going on. But uh, if, if you take uh, the writings of, of Magna Carta, for instance, and you take the phrases, uh, law of the land, lex terra, in the Latin, uh, the phrases uh, 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 of your peers, peers being a statement about the jury, peers, paris in the Latin, to understand those Latin words and just bring them up and then transfer them over to the Constitution of the United States and you, you've got the meaning of that phrase, for instance, law of the land. It's, the meaning of that phrase is, is unknown among lawyers and judges in America. I've discovered they don't have a clue what that means. Now, the Supreme Court of the United States has traced it back and they've said, yeah, we know what this means and it's an important phrase. What it means is this. It's their old phrase for due process, what we call today due process. What's due process? Well, another word for due process is common law, common law. <laughs> Our common law is not a list of laws. It's a law of process. It's a course you get on, a way. I've said this hundreds of times on this show, but it bears repeating. But to understand words, just trace them through, and sometimes then you have to transfer them over to Anglo-Saxon and English. Well, you do that. And then you, it continues that use right on through Anglo-Saxon and English. But at bottom line, uh, men, men lose the meanings of words according to their etymology. Yeah. That means tracing their usage back to their fundamental. Then men lose their lives, their liberties, and their properties. And I'll add this, Roger. I'll add this. 
of all the tongues among men. And Paul brought this out. We talked about it a little bit when he was on a couple of weeks ago. We talked about William Tyndale. William Tyndale was the first man to translate um, the Bible into English. And almost all of it, they got to him and murdered him before he got the whole thing done. Transfer all the, uh, the Bible into English, Anglo-Saxon, from the original tongues, the Hebrew and Aramaic of the Older Testament and the Koine Greek of the New Testament. But Tyndale was right, and he made the comment, there's not a better tongue to translate the Hebrew of the Older Testament into than the English, the Anglo-Saxon. Why? Because the Anglo-Saxon is short and punchy and gets right to the point. Why? Because the people that spoke it lived right down to the ground. You take those people that lived over there, uh, from the base of the Jutland Peninsula and up, which included the Celts, the Saxons moving north, the angels in the middle of that, and at the top, the Danes, those were the people that came to England, and those are the people that had the Volkreich, the old common law. And those were the people, those were the people that were, well, they were exceedingly uh, rugged folk. They were seafaring men and very dangerous men. They lived right down to the ground. And they didn't miss words. And so their words are always all near one and two syllables. That's our English tongue. Well, the Hebrew is the same way. Those people live right down to the ground, and their words are all one and two syllables. And so it fit real, fits real well to translate it over into English. Well, I can Back tell you, you as somebody that has undertaken and certainly not completed learning a second language, the other languages, that's one of the things that people like about English. If you're down here and you're trying to learn Spanish and you get out there with someone who speaks both languages, well, they don't want to speak Spanish. They want to speak English because they want to practice. Okay? So it's oh, hard do. for you to get Spanish practice because all the people you can really do it with want to speak English. And the reason they want to speak English is because it's so much simpler. You can say the same thing in far fewer words than you can in Spanish. I'm not sure about the other languages, but that they're all pretty much Latin-based. I would imagine it's the same way. Uh, well, but, you know, my yeah, favorite right. example, yeah. okay, and I've used it on the show a few times, was the time that I flew down for my move, uh, which was the second time I'd flown down here. And I'd learned enough the first time to book it on an airline that I really liked rather than one of the American airlines. It was a Chilean airline called LAN. Uh, they've done some mergers since with Brazilian airlines and stuff, but it's a real good airline. And so I got on LAN in Miami and uh -huh. flew to Santiago. And, you know, when you get on a flight and the stewardess has come up there and give the flight opening speech, right? Well, be yeah. because this was yeah. a Spanish airline, the, they gave it first in Spanish and then in English. And so the little okay. stewardess gets up there. And she, I mean, literally about three or four minutes. All right. And then they come in and secondly do the English translation. And so it comes for her to give the English translation. And she says, fasten your seatbelt. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I remember saying, good Lord, I got to learn all that to say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, anymore, Roger, you can uh, see the directions are written on the walls or in uh, places of business or in uh, users' manuals. You see the direction. Just count the number of phrases on the wall that says, uh, you know, in case of fire, break this last, and it'll have it in English, <laughs> right. Spanish, and French. Well, the English will be 
two lines, and the Spanish and French will be three, three, three lines. But it's the same thing. Yeah. That, I have that's an observation. Spelled. Do what, DP? I have an observation is that flying the Russian airlines was the same way as no. they talk forever in Russian, and then there was only a few words in English. I just wanted to throw that in. Yeah, man, I'm sure it's that way pretty much all over. The other thing that hit me, Brent, earlier when you were talking about that, and as we've discussed a little bit subsequently, was, and I mentioned this the other day, early on with my particular focus on a couple of key words over the years, one being, uh-huh. one being resident. And uh-huh. early on when I was doing the programs, a listener sent me, as so many listeners have sent me so many valuable pieces I would have never found, okay, really. And uh, some listeners sent me uh, a copy of the pages in Vitell's Law of Nations that deal with residency. Have you ever read those? Uh, you sent them to me once, Roger, and I read them. And, and you notice that if you read it, that every time he mentioned, mentioned the word resident, it was the two words resident alien, which gives you an exact meaning of the word, much more so than when they bastardized it and pulled alien away and gave you the geographical definition so they could pull off the uh, equivocation. The dialectic is what what I think happened, but I was startled to go back there in that old thing, like you said, very, very, very understandable, and the words being used in an original, important document like that show exactly what it is, that you're a resident there, but you're an alien because you are abiding to the laws of another jurisdiction. Uh-huh. So anyway, just interesting, those are the key ones, you know, and the other one I was going to mention that they have absolutely, outside of the two key political words, the phrases, one of them is a phrase, citizen of the United States, the other resident, I guess the most bastardized word that they have sent through their procedure, I would have to think is gay. (laughs) Well, that was um, well orchestrated. The sodomite community set about to orchestrate, spent millions of dollars to or- orchestrate the change of the meaning of that word. And uh, you can read a book about it. There's a book out there that describes how it was done, written by them, written by them, Roger, not by their their uh, supposed enemies, people that have their heads screwed on a little straighter. Oh, yeah. And, Roger, when I was, uh, well, it's been 15 years ago now, I was invited to the first showing of, Aaron Russo's uh, uh, oh, movie. Freedom, uh, freedom from freedom. fascism. Yeah, and there were about a dozen of us there, and we were uh, lawyers that did criminal tax defense and CPAs. And uh, uh, he was there, and it was, in a, it was in an old, fancy hotel right downtown Dallas, right within short walking distance of the, the grassy knoll and all that where the, the book depository where Kennedy was killed and uh, murdered murdered yeah murdered good word well at any rate uh, we were there and uh and um, i forgot what you had said roger i got to talking about the grassy knoll and my mind went off on the grassy knoll we're what talking were you about freedom talking? to fascism something about being there with aaron Rousseau in the first what? showing what were you talking you were about? talking about the word gay gay oh so we were there, and there was a fellow there, 
well, one of the leaders there who said, look, he made a presentation. He said, I've talked to people. He was, uh, he worked in Washington, D.C., and he was, uh, uh, he was a, a medical doctor and a lawyer. That's what I remember about him. He, he since passed away. But he said, we've done the research, and we've talked to the right people. And if we have, I forget how many million dollars they needed, we can change the whole point of view of the United States concerning income taxation. All you got to do is pay them. They'll do it for you. That's all you got to do. They know how to control the media, but it takes it can take from five to ten years, depending upon how much how much resources we have. But it's easy to do. You change the whole perception of a whole country on a particular question. And there are people in New York City and Boston firms that do nothing but that. Yep. So when you're when you're thinking about a particular question or issue, keep in mind that the media is being controlled by people who have unlimited funds to hire firms like that to promote their point of view and change your mind and change the mind of the whole country, and they're doing it constantly. Let me give you a, a timely example as uh, Tucker Carlson went into it, I think, last night, maybe night before last. Uh, uh -huh. Showed all these rapid clips. of First of all, one of these guys, Castro, I think was his name, that dropped out of the race, this young Hispanic kid. And then it went through the litany of all the candidates. All of a sudden, one of the really big problems, and I mean it must be a real big problem, is the uh, the murder rate of black transgenders. Oh. Don't, Who's doing it, Rod? Well, well, that's very interesting because one of the organizations that started the whole thing that was real out front Tucker Carlson's research bunch went back to their research <laughs> and it's like 26, uh, 26 of them have problems last year, you know, up against, uh, how many, half a million or more opioid deaths, uh, drunk drivers from illegal aliens, murders from illegal aliens, all those, all those other ones were off the chart. But this one little thing, according to their own research, when you went back and went through it, is one of the most pressing problems in America is the, the murder of particularly black uh, transgender people. Okay. So it's just uh, exactly what you're talking about on this topic this week. And they, these folks that have the power of the media and know the devices that must be used to change the public perception across the board, they're very effective. They learn to deal. That's why the whole idea of, of psychology has become so popular yeah. because psychology is all about how can you control the future behavior of men by understanding their suke. Well, And their suke. Their suke is their, their being, their soul, and their body, absent their spirit. As though a man, and this is what they believe, man is not a tripart being, as Paul the Apostle says, body, soul, and spirit, gumption breath, that is. He is only a, a two-part being, just body and soul. In other words, he has what animals have. Animals have body and soul. They have the physical, tangible body, and they have the, the exchange of oxygen, and carbon dioxide that makes their body stand up and be sturge and move, become animated. That's why we call them animals. And they say men are nothing but animated creatures, animals that move because they have this, this phenomenon going on where they can uh, exchange carbon dioxide. That's your soul. That's who you are. 
That's what makes you alive. That is the, that is the word of the Old Testament. I, and God breathed into his nostrils, Adam, the breath of life, the nephesh. That's the soul. In the Newer Testament, the word is suke. We get the word physical from it. It's all about physical life. That's all they got on their minds. They deny entirely the spiritual realm and the spirit of man. And that's what distinguishes us fundamentally from the animal. The animal has a soul. The animal has a body. But the animal does not have a spirit. You say, how do you know? Well, because God said so. That's what distinguishes me. And there is a breath of life in animals, all animals, because God gave it to them. And there's also breath of life in plant. It's just the opposite exchange. It's uh, one takes in oxygen, gives off carbon dioxide. The plants take in carbon dioxide and gives off, give off oxygen. That's good for all of us, of course. Keeps the balance going. But the psychobabble crowd and the people that want to control the future behavior of man. That's what the law of the city is all about. That's what legislation is all about. It's all about how can we control the future behavior of man? Whereas our common law, the law of the land does it the other way around. When you're dealing in common law, you don't ask the jury what's going to happen in the future or tell them to command the future. You tell the jury, tell us what happened in the past. That's a whole different approach to reality. Yeah. Whole different approach. And it comes out at every point. For example, with this whole idea of how can we control the masses. It's our job, Roger. Here's the point I'm making. And you make this point, too, in other ways. But when you say come out of her, that's what you're getting out of. You've got to separate yourself from the madness of this control so that you will not become a useful idiot of this a ping pong ball for the evil empire. And it is a ping-pong ball phenomenon. Yeah. Rupert Murdoch owns Fox News and, and Tucker Carlson just like he owns CNN. Now, they think, oh, we're saying the right thing. Yeah, but you're working for the guy that's saying the wrong thing just so he can yeah. keep this confusion going. I will tell you, it's amazing to me how much, they, how much of a leash they give him. Okay. Well, they do, but they know they've got to keep that going or they can't keep keep the confusion and the fight and the yeah, waste yeah. going. People upset. Sure. No, I understand all that. But uh, I, I, I still am amazed because I like Tucker because he's talented. My, You know, I mean, he's just a talented guy, and he seems to me to speak the truth, although he doesn't really identify the key people. He just labels them. Okay? And, oh, I, I like too, Roger, I understand, but he's not. There's things he won't say. Oh, right? absolutely, job. absolutely. But it keeps. He says, and they, they've got it down to science. They know just how much they leash they can give him and Rush Limbaugh, for example, to say what they say. And uh, but if they say too much, the tr all the truth would come out, and the uh, the lie would just recede from consideration. Well, because the truth will. We'll always win when it's out. You know, Brent, that's what I see happening is the general consciousness on this this and these issues is rising, raising, rising. Uh, it is getting greater as a percentage of the population because of the Internet, because of the degree that these situations are in, and all of a sudden it gets to a point where people really do sit down and start asking questions and looking for answers, and I just see that. Uh by Trump's appointment of a anti-Semite czar to the State Department, for instance, uh, they don't do those things just on a whim. You know. Well, what was that guy's name, Roger? I don't. It's some Jew. I don't know. I can't remember who it is. 
Well, um, when you say anti-Semite, you mean that he's against the Arabs. Well, no, I mean that it's being used in the false paradigm and that he's, he, he, he's got somebody up there to try and combat how they want to utilize the term anti-Semite. Oh, but, I see what you're uh, saying. But, but it is losing its effectiveness, you know. That's why they're having to do that. Because it's just like the lady that was an MP of the Knesset that was interviewed on, on PBS. We used that line around here. It happened a number of years ago. I'm assuming you've seen the clip. She was being interviewed by that Amy Goodman lady, and she brought up the term anti-Semitism. And I try and do it in her dialect, but I'm probably not as good as her. It's a trick. We always use it. In Europe, we use the Holocaust. In the United States, we use anti-Semite. You know, I mean, publicly, publicly stated right there on, on public broadcasting. Well, Roger, that wasn't a bad imitation. Don't be too hard on yourself. <laughs> I mean, given the fact that you're, you're not female, that wasn't too bad. It's a trick. <laughs> we always use it. <laughs> oh, boy. I tell you, it's, well, a, it's a heck of a world. I was talking earlier and pontificating a bit this week on gratitude. And how grateful we should be that we have access to the answers to the historical and factual origins of a lot of this and know the structural way that it was engineered and, you know, really know how to get out of it or at least confront them with their fraud, put it that way, and uh, uh, how grateful we should be and how grateful I hope all no, I of you are, you know, really. What is it, what I, over the years, Brent, what I've kind of deduced down is that the, the end goal of all this is to put yourself in a position where you can make decisions that are not detrimental to your future and your progeny. Because it just helps That's you make good. good decisions because the system is totally engineered and set up to clean your clock and suck your essence out and leave you on the side of the road. And any decisions that you can make that take that and make and nullify it or improve it is nothing but in your favor. And if you don't know this information, it's very difficult to make good decisions. Okay, Roger, I want to raise another question then. And uh, I, want to, I want you to weigh in on it. I'm part of a group. Sometimes I listen in. It's just a conference call. It's been going on for years, and it's they call themselves Norm. They've been around for decades. My dad was involved with the same people. They've just changed their names when, when we were on the farm at home. Norm, N-O-R-M, mm -hmm. National Organization for Raw Materials, Norm. Mm -hmm. And the leader, the present leader, um, Dad was in the NFO, the National Farmers Organization, same bunch, had the same philosophy when I was growing up. He was secretary in our little county. And what we tried to do was, as a teenager, we would not sell our, our cattle, our hogs, our grain, our eggs, our milk to just whoever's handy. We got together, and uh, the farmers then, through that organization, bargained with certain meat packers for a price instead of just taking whatever they give you. See? Right, right. Same way with, well, anyway, we did that and we had certain collection points. We had like old York or down on the Wabash river. That's where we'd take our livestock. We had a fellow down there. I remember old Cecil, he collected cattle and hogs and then he'd ship them off the stockyards in Indianapolis to the certain packers. 
But um, during that time, well, it didn't get as far as we wanted it to. Here's what I'm going to get at, Roger. On the call, the leader of the of the of the norm of the movement now makes much of this point, and I went to James the Apostle. I was just this morning working on it. James the Apostle talks about wealth. He's talking to rich men who are abusing men that are not quite as well off, and he says how and grieve and all those kind of things. And but he says. Uh, rich men, he says, lead now, weep and howl for your miseries that are your comeuppance. I'm reading from the Winter Eyes version of the Bible. Your comeuppance. Your wealth has rotted. Your wealth has rotted and your overcloaks have become moth-eaten. Well, this fellow says this, and I'm, I'm persuaded. He says, if it don't rot or rust, it ain't wealth. If it don't rot or rust, it ain't wealth. So what James is talking about here under that definition, uh, he's talking about these people that have true wealth. If it doesn't, that's another word. If it's not taken out of the ground, coaxed from the soil, or worried from the rocks, the mines, it's not wealth. And all wealth either rots or rusts, and therefore all wealth as from a man's, man, mankind's perspective, has to be continually replenished. It can't just sit. Now, we like gold and silver because it doesn't rot or corrode or rust very fast. As a matter of fact, it's so slow that it's almost undetectable. But the truth is, it does rot and rust. But this statement that he makes, Roger, that I'm throwing out, all true wealth either rots or rusts. That's the statement I wanted to throw out and wanted you to weigh in on. Well, I'm the first way I'm going to give you is I'm, I'm going to need to noodle on that for a little bit. You've been working on it, and it's brand new to me here this morning. Um, okay. Uh, Can I add one to it? Yeah, yes, please, Chris. Well, I agree with his general premise, although I think there's another aspect we have to add. Rots, rust, or erodes, because as it abrades away from use, abuse, rolling around the dirt, the waters, the rivers, whatever else, it can all kind of vaporize into undetectable nano-dust. Well, that's a good point, Chris. I, in my understanding of the word used here, the Greek word, it includes uh, that kind of an idea of corrosion. There's another word, wearing away. The word is uh, it, 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 it uh, comprises all those ideas. Matter mm -hmm. of fact, uh, I've got down here, gnaw away. It can be gnawed away. In other words, it, it goes away in time. It's not eternal. It's not something that, that uh, you put away and you never have to worry about it again. And that's it. That's his yeah, point. That's James's point. Go ahead. Yeah, throw in a funny... I can remember on Mama's Family, it was an extrapolation from the Andy Griffith and Mayberry show. Uh, they had a fellow, I think his name was Ernest T. Bass, and they were hooking him up with a daughter or something like that. And he'd come in one time and said he was, somebody said he was hungry. He said he was so hungry he could eat the hide right off a of Naga. <laughs> uh, referring to Naga Hide. <laughs> well. 
Yeah, there's a lot of colorful yeah. ways to say that. Uh, well, where does that put Bitcoin? Well, that's why one of the things I wanted you to weigh in on. Well, I don't know. Uh, Bitcoin, well, not, it does not rot or rust, but yet is it a store of wealth? Because you see, really, when you get down on this conversation of money, this is a big factor I missed. It's probably the reason I'm not wealthy today. Because I remember the day the white paper on Bitcoin came out. Robbie Noel talked about it and was a real big advocate on it in those early days. Um, but the what I missed on Bitcoin was a aspect that Cliff High was 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 instrumental in bringing forward is that the value of money is like a conversation because it's always used in a medium of exchange and so the conversation is whatever you're 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 dealing with to get one to sell and one to buy you've got to agree on the medium of exchange and it's got to be acceptable to both of you so you know when you look at that uh, now in the early days of bitcoin because of what it is and, and and the situation we're in it's being used as a speculative vehicle down the line ideally it would be dispersed throughout the whole population and accepted and it would have a value but the value would be dictated uh, on a medium of exchange basis. So I, I don't know. Those are just ideas I'm throwing out after being hit with your concept there initially, Brent. Um, I've got a lot of faith in Bitcoin personally. Um, I think it's it's a real – one of the reasons that I got a lot of faith in it is because they're scared as hell of it, and their actions point that with neon signs. Okay, So that automatically – Anything they are don't like or, or are scared of, I like. You know, it's the old the enemy of my the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That type of situation. So I don't know. Interesting. I'll noodle on it though, Brent. I have Hello, a Roger. Go ahead, Chris. Well, I've maintained continually and still to this day am of the opinion strong. In my world, it's what I live by, and I'm not disputing that for a time there could be some value and perhaps some return on investment for one in Bitcoin. However, anything that be, can be created with a keystroke can be made to disappear. But, with but a it, well, it's not. That's but that's it. Chris is not created with a keystroke. It's created with a mathematical formula, and it's based on mathematics, which our whole world, as I look around with the Fibonacci curve and everything else, everything else God bases on mathematics too, okay? And, and so, I, I yes, if it's not a cyber coin that is produced through a mathematical formula where a whole bunch of people have to participate, if it's just another a chameleon of fiat currency that's digital. No, I, I, I you know, I'm not going to go put my eggs in that basket. Well, like I say, a certain investment in that I think is probably prudent for somebody that has some uh, extra resources to put in that sort of situation. They might realize great appreciation. Well, go ahead, uh, Brent. You know, it's got a lot of advantages. Obviously, there's some disadvantages. Everything in life is balance and yin and yang. As I've become aware of it at this later stage of my life, I find it all works in that formula. 
It's all balance. Life is balance. Does anybody disagree with that? Somebody's typing. Roger? Yes, sir, Brent. You were going to say something a minute Hello. ago. Hello, Brent, we're here. Well, I'm not hearing you so good, but if you can hear me, I'll talk some more. Can you're, you hear me? You're clipping in and out a little bit. It's that upload side of your internet situation, too, but go ahead. I think we can pull out of it what we need. Well, I wanted to bring up, Roger, I wanted to bring up the shooting that occurred yes. in the church in Central Texas not too long ago. A man came to church, hid under his coat, killed a deacon, two deacons. And the other might just have been a fellow standing in the back. I don't know. But I watched the video of that exchange of gunfire. Eventually, Someone signal me if you're hearing me. I hear you. funny out there. I I hear you. Are you loud and clear? No. Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take Daryl's advice, shut it down, and reboot. Okay. Well, while you're doing that, somebody back in a minute. All right. Somebody tried to call in. Somebody tried to call in eight one eight. Got to copy your phone number down and and call you back. So this because you're not hadn't called before. This takes a second. Chris, you want to say something while Brent's I'll doing call that? You and, all right. Yeah, Brent, you can call us back. Absolutely. And while Brent's upon uh, uh, I have looked at that and listened to AJ, which is down the middle of that sort of stuff. Alex Jones, the Infowar Station, and. I have strong concerns about the reality, given that there was coincidentally a retired FBI agent in the group, not without some sense of potential reality, but I think it was highly compared to prove the FBI's image. Go ahead, Brent. You're, you're coming in, Brent, uh, getting clipped, and I'm trying to call this caller back who'd never called in before. From a written, written number, I had to write on a small screen with my terrible eyes. So go ahead. Brent? Brent, is anybody there? Yeah. Well, I'm here. Okay, I'm trying to call this caller. Please leave me a message. <laughs> I tried. I tried well, to call you back. There. Well, you're there, Brent. I mean, get, thank you for Microsoft for all this wonderful confusion. Well, I'm not being heard. Doesn't sound like so. I'll uh, Brent, I hear you, Brent. We see. hear you, Brent. We hear it's you. I hear you real back. good, Brent. I hear you real good. Everybody hears you, man. <laughs> we hear you, bro. Can't you get us, Brent? <laughs> Oh, man, I'll tell you what. What an aggravate. All right, 818, you're trying to call in again. I hit you. Skype won't merge you. I've written your phone number down. I'll call you right back. Don't let the answering machine get it. How about all that? Okay, somebody say something. I mean, good Lord. Boy, I'll tell you what. At times, this job gets extremely (laughs) difficult. (laughs) <laughs> and testy too. 
Well, you know, you know, Chris, it didn't used to be that way. Well, it, it didn't used it to be that now. way until these software engineers at Microsoft totally screwed this thing up. I hear Brent again. Yeah, we've heard him the whole time. Let's see if we can get 818 in here. Obviously, he's tried to call a couple of times, and it's calling him right now, so we'll see if it patches him in. Uh, there, I think we patched him in. 818, is that you? Yes, it is, Roger. Paul Bailey, Roger Brent. Hey, Paul. <laughs> sorry, for, yeah. sorry for the confusion. No, hey, that's fine. <laughs> I understand. Yeah, it's a good show today. As good. usual, K9 listening. Thank you. <laughs> As we're getting ready to take off. Uh, um, you know, I, I was going to just briefly call in. I know you guys are talking about, you know, like Norm and things like that. And I was hearing that. Uh, have you heard of the Utah Goldbacks? Were Utah's making gold and silver legal tender out there? Well, yes. And then there is a company... Uh, I think it's now called United uh, Precious Metals Association. They are now printing <laughs> with 24 karat gold uh, denominations. Yeah, you know, so it's like like you one one a one Utah gold back has one one thousandth of an ounce of gold in it. Wow, and and then the five would have. Uh, five one thousandths, and the ten would be one hundredth of an ounce. Paul, let me ask you. I've seen several technologies doing this, and I'm involved with carrot bars out of Germany, which has been doing yeah. this very same thing for a couple of years now in different denominations, subgram. But there was two ways. Just when they were announcing that, I saw a video of another company that had a process where they basically took two transparent vinyl uh, sides and they would put an amount of gold inside. Is that the way Correct. this company's doing it or is it the other way like carrot bars? Basically that is what it's doing. Pardon? Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, it is basically what they're doing. Uh-huh. They, they, they'll take that, that vinyl transparency and then they, they uh, uh, electroplate some way one one thousandth of an ounce of gold into their one one dollar uh, bill, right? Or whatever you want to call it, not, not legal tender. They even say that it's just voluntary local currency. Anyway, it's just really cute. If it's, you go to their site, they will send you one free. Well, that's nice. When tell the supplies, you know, yeah, hey, I, I got one. We just got it in yesterday. Give us, give us the name no. of the site again, Paul, please. And I want to say I was, years ago when I saw that video on that process, I was very impressed with it. I thought it was real slick. What's the uh, website and the name of the operation again, please? Goldback.com. Just like, like it says, instead of greenbacks, like, like Lincoln did, goldbacks. Okay. So it's gold, B-A-C-K-S dot com, right? Uh, yeah, B-U-C-K, no S, goldback dot com. Oh, just goldback, B-A-C-K. Yes. Okay, And or, 
and then from that link, you can get to their other link, which is the company that's actually doing it, where you set up an account and they'll send it. But that's capital U, capital P, capital M, capital A, dot org. U-P-M-A dot org? United Precious, yeah. Okay. United Precious Metals Association. UPMA.org. Interesting. Some of our audience, no doubt, will follow up on that. But you see, this is just another oh, yeah. way. You know, when problem, nature abhors a vacuum. And they've had total uh-huh. monopolistic control over this fiat money and its legal tender aspects for many decades now. And that's the vacuum. And now... Uh, you're seeing Bitcoin and, and, and these different things. We're moving back to a hard money system. The pendulum's swinging right now. And uh, this year's going to be real pivotal in that, I think. So it's quite interesting and real exciting in many ways. I don't know how long you've been in the battle here in the rodeo, but for those of us who've been around a while, things look real bright compared to where they were 15 or 20 years ago. Oh, Absolutely. No, I think things are improving. I think more and more people are waking up. Well, absolutely. And, and hey, you know, you know, it's it's cute. I, I got one, and they're, they, they, like I said, they have the 1, the 5, a 10, a 25, and a 50. And they're all different sizes. You know, they keep getting bigger as they get, you know. And, really? and then, like on a 50, it's actually 1 20th of an ounce of gold. Okay. Well, and like I said, that's how I Carrot mean, Bar, they did it. Hey, have you seen one of the carrot bar bills, Paul? Yeah, you know, I, 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 I've looked at their site. I, I have not uh, actually had the time. You know, I mean, I have well, bought one. Well, they've, uh, but I have looked it's been a year ago. Right. Well, I remember when you first talked about them. Right. And they've taken and they changed it a little bit now. From I got one some when I was over there in Germany, after they were really first out and brought them back, and they've changed it a bit since then. Back then they only had one tenth of a gram, and what they do is they've got a nice little kind of it's it's not vinyl, but it's a an embossed paper. It looks like it's got that kind of a con. A, a, it feels like that in a sense, and then they take and in the center of it they put whatever the denomination is in there somehow. And it's actually a little gold bar, and it's got its own individual number on it and all that stuff. It's real slick. And uh, it, all these different methods and approaches um, is fantastic because it's going to solve that problem of nature abhors a vacuum. We're, the people are going to demand an honest monetary system. And this one's getting real upside down, and it's getting worse by the day. The banking system is broken, and they can't fix it. Okay, if you can't pour, if you can't pour a half a trillion dollars on something in the last sixty days and solve a problem, it ain't fixable. (laughs) Yeah, Roger, I got one of those in my billfold. Do you, DP? Yes, sir. A carrot bar one or this other one? No, it's a carrot bar. Yeah, they're really cool. I carry one with me all the time. Yeah. I got it right there in my little folding money deal so I can show it to people. Yes. Now, those yes. cost back then when I bought mine and I traded some of the other gold for it just in a trade, and I think it broke down to about $7.50 a gram. Now, keep in mind, 
And I know in carrot bars instance, that's virtually 24 karat gold. Right. And, and these are, the gold backs are 24 karat gold. And, and except just a little bar, the whole final sheet is this thin layer of gold. Right. Well, obviously when you get a 50, which I don't have yet, but when you get the 50, you'll fill them that way. That yeah. One twentieth of an ounce. Yeah, and they'll be thicker, but it's also bigger. It's, it's, they're beautiful. And I, I think, thought I'd let you guys know. I think you also got Arizona that's uh, uh, done something with gold and silver and legal tender out there. So there's two of the states out west. Maybe Nevada is. Paul, give us a little bit of background. You obviously have been listening to the show for a while, but I've never, uh, I don't remember you calling in up to this point. So welcome. Bienvenidos. Hey, my wife, Kay, is who usually calls Oh, in. Paul. Okay. So All right. Gotcha, man. And this Brent, guy. Brent, Brent and I have talked different times and, and, and several times on the norm show on Saturdays, but yeah, uh, I know I'm usually gone. I place yeah. you now uh, <laughs> and for the audience, the, him, him and Kay have been around since I started doing this years ago, 10 years ago, you've been hanging around. You guys took a little sabbatical for a couple of years with grandkids, but both of you are back. Yep. <laughs> now we are good yep, deal out here in Connecticut. Well, California. Okay, well, I'll put. What was that? Slightly. I'll be going able. Back what? Oh, he was back in California in the old days. They've gone back east. I'll be able to put your profile, Paul, and identify it where I don't have to call you back next time. Okay, so sorry for the confusion. Not a problem. I know that. In case of John, you'll he'll probably have to call you back. Yeah, which is fine. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, really good to hear from you because you and I have never really conversed too much. I usually uh, uh, communicate with your wife, so uh, it's a particular pleasure yep. for me because you've been you're an old timer. You've been around for a long time. On 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 our deal, <laughs> I'm not being anything personal. Yeah. <laughs> I know. No. 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 But hey, no. Yeah. On your show and et cetera, and you know your book and hey, it's great. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, there's a yeah. lot more people I can talk to about this now than 25 years ago, I'm going to promise you. Uh, Brent, you were talking something <laughs> earlier about mathematics, and a, a, something popped into my mind. It's uh, you, You've heard my old friend, he hadn't been with us too much lately, his house burned down here a while back, a couple of weeks and whatnot, Tom Schramm. Have you ever heard Tom on here or had any communication oh, with Tom? Uh-huh. Well, you know, Tom is, he, he's a pretty smart boy and, uh, his daddy was a, was an MIT chemist who had, I believe, a master's in organic chemistry or something. <laughs> and he built a uh -huh. whole business and that's why Tom's in this stuff in the chemicals today. Cause he's raised in it. But when his dad was retired, he was looking for something to do in Atlanta and he said, well, I'll just, my wife and I'll go volunteer. And because of his background, they gave him a job helping people qualify for their GEDs by teaching the new math. And, oh, man. And he quit. Yeah. He said, I can't teach that'd him. Be like, that'd, that'd be like uh, uh, Democrat accounting and economics. <laughs> And we're laughing, but these people are really that nutty. They really believe. 
For example, I had a fellow tell me one time I was with him. He's a friend from back home, and he had followed his uh, father into the cult of of um, uh, FDRism. Oh. And he got done doing his taxes. It took him two or three days, and he said, "Wow." He said, "I understand. This is now this is a full-grown man, and by the way, he worked for the government." But he said, "Wow, I really understand now how hard work." can make you money. He said, I've been working two days doing these tax forms and I finally figured out how to save myself money on taxes. He said, that's the way the world ought to work. <laughs> that's the way they, there's no production. There's no production. There's no replenishing of wealth, filling out tax returns. But people think, some people think, oh, the government has designed it so I work hard and by uh, figuring out my taxes and I can, I can make money. So that's as silly as when I was a little boy, I went to, used to go to a grocery store, my mother. And if she didn't leave me in the car with my brother, which was always merciful because he'd beat the stuffings out of me <laughs> if she did that. <laughs> <laughs> She'd come back and we'd have each other in a headlock in the back seat. That's the way we always did. You know, boys, a brother is born for adversity, the Bible says. Well, we're close friends now. But she took me in and I was just a little shaver. Oh, no, no bigger than a corn nubbin. And she gave the man a 20 or a 10 or something. I don't know what it was. And he gave her more than one green back back. And I said to her, Mom, is that how you make money? See, I couldn't distinguish between the numbers on the bills. And I thought she got all that back with some coins and whatnot. And she was getting more money back than she gave him. Well, that's the stupidity of most people. I really see that people are woefully ignorant. Number one, they're ignorant. They're not stupid. They're right. ignorant. They're but number two, they're they're slow to see the truth. They don't care. They don't want to. Um, Somebody function, had a... Functionally illiterate, I think, is a really interesting term. And yep. may I defer to Mark Twain, it's easier to fool uh -huh. a man than tell him he's been fooled. That's a fact. Oh, no. Now let me let me throw a name out and see what it elicits from Brent on this topic. The name is priceless. Beardsley Rummel. Doesn't ring a bell, Roger. You don't know who Beardsley Rummel is? That's how blasted ignorant I am, apparently. I well, didn't you're know. functional. Uh, I didn't I didn't know you were functionally <laughs> illiterate, Brent. Oh yeah. <laughs> I'm doing my best, Roger. Beardsley you know, Rummel man. is the guy okay. that we can credit with the modern-day tax system. Beardsley oh, Rummel was the guy huh? that came up with the concept of withholding at the employer. Oh, oh Beardsley Rummel. Looking him up right now because see what he looks like. What kind this of a was about, if I remember right, is about 1947, uh, 48, just about when I was born is when that floated. Yeah, World War II, they did that, right? Yeah, right after. They did remember, that. In World they War did that II, in World War II? Right, well, after World War II. In World War II, the way they conditioned you to the tax was they got you in on the victory tax. And the victory tax was on a 1040 yeah, form. Yeah, yeah. The and then they just tax. kept sending it. That. They just conditioned you right into it, you know. Oh, well, my computer's not going to pull it up. If but I what might. were you going to tell me about Beardsley? 
Well, Beardsley's the one that gave them the idea of withholding to pull the money out oh, from the employers, and then they could apply for the refund at the end of the year. They didn't have that in the system until Mr. Rummel came up with it. Well, he died in 1960. I finally got him up here. He was a Ph.D. in psychology at the University of Chicago in 1917. There you now, go. that really ought to qualify <laughs> tells, a guy. That tells you a lot. That tells I you a lot swear. right there. Hey, listen to this. He helped design the aptitude and intelligence test for the U.S. Army. Now, you take a man like that, and you're going to tell me he can measure whether or not a man has brains? I've learned better. No, he... Who, He's he gets learned. To define That's the government getting defined. Pardon. He's learned how to condition men. If yeah, I control. may, go ahead, Chris. Jump yeah, in there. Ahead. We got funky yeah. internet. Jump in when at your leisure. Well, first of all, I think the victory tax was the consent tax, and that goes back to our buddy, uh, the um, uh, propaganda. Father, uh, I can't even think of the name Bernays, right now. Bernays, Bernays, yeah, Bernays, and our consent. Uh, if we can trick them to think it's for their benefit, their consent is our victory. Uh, but more importantly, before Brent started having internet issues, he was about to give us his observations on the school shooting in Texas. That's right, in the church where he got shot. And I'm quite curious as to what his assessment. Oh, well, after watching that video, by the way, it looks to me like it's been taken down. Maybe not. It's not bloody, but it's vivid as to what happened. A small church, Church Christ, Central Texas, um, there were men in the back that looked like deacons, you know, the guys that hand out the, the program and make sure everybody has a nice place to sit, and they're dressed with ties and Look very sharp. One was black man, the very back. Another, two other men were standing in the back, and this fella comes in, dressed in a long coat, and you can see him in the video. He's talking, facing the back of the church, in the back, talking to the black man standing in the back, and all of a sudden, he uncloaks this shotgun and pulls the trigger. On no, no, he uncloaks the shotgun. Another man. But uh, not far away in the back, steps up and reaches back like he's getting ready to pull a pistol out of his belt. And before he can get the pistol out, he he draws down on him with the shotgun, pulls the trigger and knocks him out of the way. And then he pulls the trigger on the black man, the deacon. And right after that happened, you see another man over to the right, over to the left, moving in and pulling his pistol. And he points and pulls the trigger and blows this man's brains out. And by that time, you can see everybody in the church, they had ducked under, ducked under the pews, most of them. Took some, it's funny, it's fascinating to watch the response of all those people in the face of this gunfire. That's what really fascinated me. But here's what I learned from it. Here's what I learned from it. We live in an evil world, and I'm fully convinced that the evil empire put that man up to what he did. Somehow, some way. That's the way it always works. You see somebody in a in a in a church like that. It was a pretty nice day in Texas with a long coat. You better be watching him real close and not get too close. Now, what could this what could this black man have done to save his life? 
Uh, I'm not criticizing him. I don't know what I'd have done. Oh, how do you handle a situation like that? It looks to me like when that man pulled out that shotgun, the only chance he had was to be all over him with his fist and his arms and his hands. And he didn't have time to grab anything. He could have just dove on him. Maybe I say these things because if you don't have these ideas in your head before it happens, you may die. Yep. We live in that kind of a world. Yep. But fortunately, fortunately, that one old fellow standing in the back had a pistol. He pulled it out and he was deadly. Come to find out, by the way, he's a firearms instructor for concealed carry. And he didn't miss a beat. He had trained himself. When you train yourself, that means when the emergency happens, you don't have to think. It just happens. You've been trained. And once you've been trained, and this is true also with the word of God, that's why we need to meditate on the law of God. So that when something happens, we don't react. We don't react. We act. I like to say, and I've said this on the air before, I think I've got enough time to say it again. And this magnifies the difference between men and women, and it's important and a good difference. Good for both both the female and the male of the species. The man, by nature, does violence, does violence if he's masculine. He does violence on purpose. The woman, by nature and by necessity, the way God made her, she acts on impulse. And she acts on impulse with violence, no matter how sweet she may look, to protect her children and her husband. She can act on impulse. On impulse, The man must train himself to be a man, and he's wired for it. Beware. Beware the violence of a patient man. Now, this man that pulled the trigger on this gunman was patient. How do I know? Because it takes time and discipline to train yourself. It was fascinating to watch him. I watched him over and over. He didn't miss a beat. What, he, that, he didn't have time to save these two other fellows' lives. But he did have time. He got that out, and it was one shot right to the head. And he realized. See, he realized when he saw that gun go off, I, I don't want to wound this man. I'm going for the headshot. Of course, he was trained, too, to not miss with the headshot. Right. And if you're not trained, you'll have what they call in the in the woods back home, buck fever. Even though you see the deer, you're nervous. <laughs> You've got to be trained to the task. You've got to fire hundreds and hundreds of rounds at a target so it becomes natural to you. You don't flinch anymore because you've done it so many times. Brent, didn't you know I they, hear that there were six or seven other people that had weapons on them in the congregation, but right. this guy's the one that yeah. stepped forward? Now I understand because he was an instructor. Oh, yeah, but the others, the others were, they were, he just happened to be in the right place. The one man that was killed was reaching to pull his pistol. He just couldn't get it out quick enough. But he, he saw right away, as soon as he pulled the trigger on one fella, uh, well, you maybe you can find it and watch it. I think I'm getting my sequence of events confused here. But there were more than one man there. There was more than one man there that were willing to pull. Of course, that fella, like you said, he must have been a pretty good marksman. You don't become a good marksman by nature. No, you don't. You become a, you become a good marksman by firing hundreds of rounds until your weapon becomes a part of your body. Yep. I like to tell people this. I like to tell people this. I used to, when I was young, I could sit across a gymnasium down in Hudsonville along the river. I remember looking, and there was a girl over there on the other side. She was from Hudsonville. I kind of liked her. And I could tell, even though I couldn't see her eyes, I could tell when she was looking at me. 
And we can, I could do that with a lot of people when I was younger. And I can still do it today, even though my eyes aren't as good. And there's something about our instinct that can tell, we can tell when people are looking at us, even when we can't see the pupils of their eyes. You can feel it. Well, that's the way your gun... Pardon? You can feel it. Pardon? You can feel it. Yeah, you can feel it. And that's the way your gun... Your gun can get that way in your hands. Back to you, Roger. Well, it's back to the end of the show and a hard break here. And I'm going to take your thunder and say, Common Lawyer dot com is where you can get more brent winters he's on saturday and sunday with a whole bunch of other stuff and you can find all the information and how to integrate yourself with it over there at commonlawyer.com we're sure appreciative that he's here with us on fridays and we get to cover information that's so wonderful like we've covered in the last two hours and as it ends up at this point of the program on Fridays. I got to say thank you very much, Brent. We sure appreciate you. We're glad to have you and we appreciate your wisdom and your insight, my friend, and the advantages that you help give us. So, great program. Good uh yeah, very good. This whole week has been meaty, man. I mean, I'm just shocked yeah. at the end of it to look back and see some of the things we've stumbled into this week. Hopefully next week will be the same. And I think the whole year is yes. going to be real illuminating in many respects. So, uh, Brent, as always, thanks. You guys have a great weekend. And uh, we'll be back on Monday and talk some more about it. And I hope we'll see you then. Ciao, ciao. Lay your body down